Hi, I'm Trent England with Save Our States. And uh, as you know, we defend the Electoral College all around the country. And we also host this podcast, Six Questions, with various uh, policy experts. And we have uh, somebody who is, I, I'm really excited to talk with today. Uh, Rachel Bavard is the Senior Director of Policy at the Conservative Partnership Institute, or CPI. She's also the co-author with former Senator Jim DeMint of a book called Conservative, Knowing What to Keep. Uh, she's a former legislative director for Rand Paul and a uh, former uh, policy director for the Senate Steering Committee, and, and like myself, uh, also worked in the past at the Heritage Foundation. Rachel, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot for, for being on. So we'll jump right into it. Six questions. Um, first of all, you, you've been a uh, policy person for a long time, senior policy director, Conservative Partnership Institute for a while. What is it that inspired you to go to work in government and politics? <laughs> I wish I had some really inspirational story, <laughs> but um, I did my undergraduate work at Grove City College where um, a professor named Paul Kengor, who may be familiar to some of your listeners, was um, a mentor of mine. I was his teaching assistant, research assistant on a number of books. And you know, he one day was like, what is your plan? And I was like, I had no plan. I had some like vague notion of law school. And he's like, you should really try politics. I think you might like it. <laughs> So he set me up with an internship, uh, my first one in DC, and I was totally taken by just everything that goes on here. You know, I think if you're someone who likes serving causes that are bigger than yourself, you know, who is very interested and invested in where the country is going and the role that lawmakers play in that, there's an endless series of things to do in Washington. And I think also, you know, as someone who's like a generally curious person, there is so much to sink your teeth into here. And I, and I really do think, you know, I, you know, you try to push aside the hubris that, you know, Washington's the center of the world, cause it's not, but things that happen here do matter. And, and um, so I, I just fell into the career and that I loved for the last 15 years and I'm still inspired by it every day. And one of those issues, Rachel, that you have worked on is tech policy. I, I'm going to cheat a little bit and ask a two-part question because I'm curious what you think is the biggest threat from, from tech, maybe specifically big tech, but also what do you think is the most, the most promising area of you know, either, either tech uh, itself or, or tech policy? Yeah, it's a great question because I think you know, the promise of the technologies sphere is unlimited, right? It really has changed our entire lives in the past 20 years. I mean, I'm on the elder end of the millennials, right? So I'm like the last group of kids that didn't grow up with the internet being ubiquitous. That only came later. I didn't have Facebook in college, right? Um, but it really has dramatically changed how we interact, how we shop, how we speak, you know, how we engage the world. And that potential, I think, is is sort of the peak innovation, you know, that that humanity is known for. But there's also downsides to that. And I spend a lot of time writing about that because, you know, the flip side of of all the opportunity is the fact that it is changing our culture, I think, in a lot of really negative ways, too. It is reducing human interaction. It's adding a toxic element to human interaction. And it is changing our marketplace. And I think that's often overlooked in our discussions where we talk about, you know, 
people like President Trump or you know elected members of Congress being deplatformed from really what is now the public square. But you also have millions of small businesses who now rely on very ideological firms for access to the free market. And when those firms like Google or Facebook, you know, or Amazon decide to enforce ideologically. Well, that really rips the guts of capitalism away from people. And as conservatives, like we've always relied on the market, right, to express our, you know, preferences and move the country forward. So, you know, over the centuries, America and especially the Congress, we've always incorporated innovation into our values and traditions. That's something that we've done. But with this tech sector, we're at this point where we are sort of waiting for these, like the gods at Google to dictate how we will live and what we're allowed to say and all these things. And that's just not how the balance has ever been. And so I think we're at a point where our self-government actually does need to say something and say, no, this is what's allowed. These are the rules of the road, not in a way that hamstrings innovation, but in a way that, again, incorporates what's been done into to our values and traditions, as opposed to just sitting back and simply saying, you know, we're just going to allow ourselves to be reformed under whatever the rules Mark Zuckerberg, you know, sets. That's that's not right. So I spent a lot of time engaging in these philosophical questions, but then which I think sort of devolve into the policy debates that you're now seeing on Capitol Hill. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just put in a plug uh, for your work, Rachel. I, I think that you're writing on this, uh, along with other folks affiliated with, with CPI, and, and certainly there, there are other folks out there as well, is really insightful, kind of exploring this idea, right, that conservatives have always been for free markets and, and limited government. But I, I guess the way, the way I think of it is, you know, one of the problems with government simply is bigness. And mm -hmm. now that we have these companies that are so big and so ubiquitous in our lives, it it's causing, I think it's causing some, some really healthy soul searching among conservatives as to whether, um, you know, whether it is government that is the problem or whether the problem with government is some of this bigness uh, and, and some of this, you know, this power, whether it's exercised by market firms or, or you know, the federal government or, or whatever. And many times it's entangled. Yeah. Right. And that's what we're seeing with these tech firms is the government entangled with some of the biggest actors the world has ever seen in the corporate sector. And that's a level of, frankly, the definition of fascism <laughs> that, yeah. that really should, I think, concern people who are inclined, I think, normally to be like, well, just let the market work. The market's not supposed to work like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So uh, jumping topics here. Question number three. Uh, for Rachel Bovard, the uh, Senior Policy Director at the Conservative Partnership Institute. Rachel, you're not just a policy wonk. I'm told you're also a wine connoisseur. So <laughs> what's your favorite wine? I was asking me like to pick my favorite child. But it's like, <laughs> yeah, so wine is, um, I'm a, a trained sommelier. And that's sort of my, how I cope with having a career in politics. Um, I have private clients. I teach classes on the side. But I think my favorite category of wine has to be the sparkling kind. I love champagne. Yesterday was my birthday and I had to drink champagne all day. So <laughs> okay. very nice. Very nice. Yeah. Today is, is my oldest child's birthday. So you're, you're one January is a great month for birthdays. <laughs> a good month. And the day before that, the day before your birthday was my mother's birthday. So it is a good month for birthdays. It is. <laughs> <laughs> so Rachel, shifting back to, uh, to politics, um, You've written about, we were talking about this a little bit in the, in the world of tech uh, just a moment ago, but this shift in corporate America away from being, you know, mostly outside of politics or, you know, trying to be bipartisan. I mean, I remember even when I was in Washington, D.C., which wasn't that long ago, 
uh, you know, firms were very interested in, in being even-handed and they were allowed to be even-handed. You know, members of Congress understood that they had to be able to talk to people on both sides. That has really changed over the last few years with uh, corporate wokeness. What, what do you see as, you know, maybe the end game here or maybe just the next step? Do you, do you see a pendulum that's starting to swing back the other direction? Or do you think that to, to, to go back in, into the grab bag of metaphors, there's another shoe that's going to drop. Things are going to get worse. Uh, Rachel, what do you think? You know, it's it's hard to be positive about this because it does seem like it's continuing to get worse. And I think it's a feature of, of two things. One is that the corporate class in America is just totally captured in their own echo chamber. I mean, they exist in this elite bubble where they they literally think they're doing the right thing. And, you know, it's also a symptom of market power, I think, to some extent. It's interesting, Senator Mike Lee pointed this out a couple of months ago at a hearing with Apple and how Apple, you know, had kicked Parler out of its app store. And he's like, look, normal companies shouldn't be able to upset half their user base and still think that they're going to be profitable. But these firms are so dominant that they can because they know that the user ultimately doesn't have anywhere else to go. So I think you have those couple of things intertwined, but then you also have this um, self-interest I see a lot in, in these firms where they, you know, and I think the progressive left makes this possible where again, going back to Apple, not to keep bashing Apple, but it's a great example where they can throw a Black Lives Matter sign, you know, up on their corporate headquarters and everyone will applaud them. Meanwhile, they're using Chinese slave labor, you know, and, but nobody's going to say that because they're doing the right thing with BLM. So there's there, you know, these companies actually do see it, I think a little bit in their self-interest to say, oh, look how good, how virtuous, how, you know, good corporate citizens we are with our diversity and inclusion. HR department and, you know, the race flogging we subject our employees to don't look over here. And so I, there's a lot of that going on, but ultimately, you know, it just can't be sustainable. Like you're starting to see banks, you're starting to see the financial sector cut people off over ideology that that cannot be sustainable. And so I do think if it gets to a certain tipping point, like you are going to see, I think the Congress, you would hope anyway, start to respond and say, look, you know, this is just not acceptable, you know, and conservatives always say, well, we'll build our own alternatives, which I support that approach as well. But again, you have to have a free market to be able to do that. And right now there's so much concentration at the top with the, you know, in the, with the big banks and the big tech firms and, you know, big pharma and all these firms that the little guys, it's really, really difficult for them to, I think, compete on an even playing field. And even when they do, again, going back to the example of Parler, Parler was really successful. It actually cracked the mainstream and what happened, right? Amazon, Apple, and Google kneecapped it and said, oh, no, 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 you don't get to challenge us. So I think we're in the middle of this still. I'm not quite sure how, when we're going to come out of it. If, if there, I, I like to think a pendulum will swing, but I still think we have some ways to go. Yeah. Well, of course, here at Save Our States, we work full time to defend the Electoral College. In Washington, there's a lot of conversation about reforming the Electoral Count Act, which defines how the, the federal government, how Congress interacts with the Electoral College and the presidential election process. Rachel, in amidst the, the, all of the left's bad ideas about elections that have been percolating in Congress now for a year, do you think that Electoral Count Act reform is, is really in the cards? Do you think that it's important? Uh, give, us, uh, give us your prognostication on this. And also, you know, just do you think it's a good idea? 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. You know, the question of elections right now in Congress is just so polarized. I mean, just this week, you're going to see Senate Democrats attempt to nuke the filibuster when Republicans don't let them pass their like massive election takeover bill. Um, So I don't know that there is a groundswell of support, you know, for moving forward on anything elections related. I think that there's just such distrust of motivations. Um, But I do think, you know, the fact is the Electoral Count Act has ambiguity, right? If, if you actually look at the old statute that you can scratch your head in a few places and be like, what exactly yeah. does this mean? Um, sometimes that's a feature, right, of, of legislation. It allows the Congress to sort of work its will, you know, in the way that it decides. And sometimes it's a bug. So I don't necessarily think reviewing old statutes is a bad exercise, uh, but I don't see much appetite, I think, for engaging in that kind of reform at this point at this standpoint, you know, who knows what kind of schemes Republicans will cook up if they take back the majority. So who knows? Okay. Uh, So last question, talking with Rachel Bavard of the Conservative Partnership Institute here on our Six Questions podcast. Rachel, we always end this way. Who is your favorite founding father and why? So I saw a poll recently that said that George Washington was America's favorite founding father, but I'm going to have to have a different answer. I've always appreciated Madison and his writings in the Federalist Papers. He was the first to see, I think, the role factionalism could play uh, in America's self-government, sort of a, and how we needed to guard against that. I spend a lot of my time here at CPI. In addition to sort of writing about policy, I also teach Senate procedure and how the Senate was designed to overcome some of that. It's why I'm very invested in this, like, like, you know, the talks about the nuclear option and breaking the filibuster, because I actually think the filibuster is designed to force consensus and overcome a lot of that factionalism. But I also would be remiss if I didn't mention Jefferson, because the guy really imported a lot of really good French wine. So you have to love him for that. <laughs> great, uh, great answers. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I feel like for those of us who work in public policy, it's hard not to, it's hard not to really love James Madison. I mean, that guy, uh, that guy was the original American policy wonk, as far as I'm concerned. He really was. He really was. Yeah. Rachel Bavard, uh, Senior Director of Policy at the Conservative Partnership Institute, a really important voice in debates about tech policy and corporate America uh, and, and so many other things. What, you know, what is conservatism with your, your book with Senator Dement? Uh, conservative, what, I got to make sure I get this, uh, the, the uh, second part right, knowing what to keep, conservative, knowing what to keep. Uh, folks should should follow Rachel on uh, um, Twitter or or wherever you're at Parlor. Uh, Rachel, you want to give us your handles real quick? Yeah, you can find me on both platforms um, at Rachel Bovard. They tell me I should get on Getter too, but I'm just overwhelmed by my options, so <laughs> I can only manage one platform at once. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for being on our Six Questions podcast. Thanks for having me.